Ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me as always, Eric Whitehead. Uh, at the control panel, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's, Phil Grant, who manages and uh, indeed operates our almost daily Grant's uh, daily bulletin. And, um, and with us today is uh, George Selwyn, who is uh, a very young chap to be an emeritus professor of anything, but he is in fact that, in addition to being a senior fellow and director of uh, the Center of Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute in Washington. He's also a zoologist, rides a motorcycle and all sorts of stuff. Author, uh, many books, not least uh, a current one called Floored. And the subtitle is as provocative and as thoughtful as is the author. And here's the subtitle, How a Misguided Fed Experiment Deepened and Prolonged the Great Recession that came out last year, but it is timely as tomorrow. So George, welcome, welcome to this podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm, I'm really excited to be speaking with yeah, you. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, George, as you know, I know you're a most worldly academic. You are a scholar, but also uh, quite alert to affairs and on Wall Street. And as you well know, a couple of Tuesdays ago, the most improbable thing happened. Uh, the market would not seem to clear in something called repurchase agreements or repo, recondite corner of the money markets, which suddenly basked in the glow of publicity. So 10% was the rate quoted to lend against the seemingly uh, armor-plated collateral of the solemn obligations of the United States Treasury, called Treasury notes, secure bonds, bills, what have you. And, uh, you know, the, every other rate in the money market is like 2%, less, more. But some of this, this sore thumb of a repo rate pops up and the Fed didn't know what to do. George, what is going on? Well, first of all, I'm going to toot my horn by pointing out that I anticipated uh, these problems, though not their severity, as long ago as uh, mid-2018. And uh, what I said back then was that uh, an occasion will come, given the Fed's plans at the time, when despite having trillions of dollars of total excess reserves in the banking system, uh, the Fed would was well, headed toward a situation where some banks would find themselves short. And then that's when uh, they start going begging for reserves from other banks. Normally, they do that in the Fed funds market, but they can also do it in the secured repo market. Well, that's what happened big time last week. But it happened to such an extent that uh, the repo market, the private repo market, wasn't able to accommodate the demands. That is, uh, there weren't enough banks willing to part with reserves to accommodate uh, those that had them on hand, at least not even for 10%. The highest repo rates I've seen uh, published by the Fed were lower than that, but presumably there were offers that went unmet. And that was a very extreme situation. Now, what uh, brought it about were uh, several developments. Uh, hey, uh, George, let me, let me, and so uh, I can go into that in more detail. Well, let's, let's, let, me, let me back up one second, George. This, uh, this uh, I guess I've said this before, this, this strikes me as evocative or comparable a little bit to the uh, gasoline lines in the bad old days of the inflationary 1970s when they had price controls on, uh, on petrol. I mean, it, it strikes me as this would seem to be a phenomenon of errant regulation, no? I mean, in its basis? Yes, well, it is. It's ultimately traceable to the fact that we have a combination of a limited supply of bank reserves, though it's hard to 
imagine uh, it being all that limited when we're talking trillions of dollars right. worth. Uh, remember that before the financial crisis, the excess reserves in the banking system are numbered in the, the low right. billions. Let's let's in, back up uh, still one the, one more step backwards. What yeah. people I think are listening might wonder what exactly is a reserve? I mean, we got oh. we got the Marine Corps Reserve, we got the uh, Federal Reserve, we got um, um, I think some whiskeys are called reserve. No, yeah, okay, so. A reserve is like a it's like a dollar bill, correct? It, it can be an actual dollar bill. The cash, the dollar bills and twenty dollar bills, etc., that banks have on hand, their actual cash, whether it's in their ATMs or right. their tills. Or but their they, we're talking about money. When people call it reserves, it's money. It's money yes. set aside to meet uh, a statutory obligation to hold something back in case the depositors all come running for their money at once. Is that basically the idea? Reserves aren't the only reserve. Right. That is paper reserves. Most reserves take a, uh, the form of banks' uh, balances that they keep at their Federal Reserve Bank. And those balances, of course, can be instantly converted into Federal Reserve notes should the banks want them in that form. But they right. can also be used directly to settle accounts with other banks. Ah, now, and, George, here we yeah. Right. Now, your book, Floored, is about the intersection of these reserves, these, this, this money, these collections of uh, more or less seemingly idle dollars on the one hand, and the power of interest rates on the other. And if I read this wonderful book, Floored, correctly, your critique is in a few sentences. It is that the Federal Reserve, by paying interest on idle balances, is perpetuating uh, some kind of false stringency in the money market, which in the absence of this rate of pay for money doing nothing, kind of money on welfare, in the absence of this rate of interest, this money would be circulating constructively in the world and, and helping to facilitate commerce. Is that more or less correct? I think that's fair, yes. There are two kinds of regulations going on here, and they're clashing with each other. On the one hand, as you said, the Fed is paying interest on reserves, making it attractive for banks to hold many, many, many more excess reserves, that's reserves beyond legal minimum requirement, than they ever would have held in the past. So that's one thing the Fed is doing. On the other hand, in implementing requirements from Basel, the Fed is also making it necessary for banks to hold large amounts of so-called high-quality liquid assets, which excess reserves qualify as. So you do have uh, both, you have regulations both encouraging banks to hold a lot of reserves and, uh, and making it necessary for them to hold a lot of reserves or other liquid assets. George, George and, there's a content. And finally, one more thing, Jim, if I may. The, the reserves that are being held are very, very heavily concentrated in the small number of banks. So you've got five banks holding 90% of all those reserves. It's not as if they're evenly distributed throughout the banking system. Uh, George, you've talked about how regulation has basically shrunk the uh, short-term funding markets, which is kind of one important aspect of this. But the other side of this is that there's a lot more collateral that needs to be financed because the U.S. is running such large deficits. Where The deficit this year is supposed to be over a trillion dollars. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the supply of treasuries is kind of exacerbating this condition? Bianco Research uh, noted that a decade ago, the repo market was uh, big enough to fund 80% of, I think, the treasury market. And today, I think he said it's closer to 20 or 22%. So the, the, the amount of funding relative to the amount of collateral that's being printed every single day is 
you know, a widening chasm. That's correct. No, that's absolutely right. And that's why you've had this problem that uh, the repo market in particular couldn't accommodate a very private repo market, couldn't accommodate a very sharp spike in the demand for uh, liquidity and for reserves particularly. And, uh, and that demand came because of other treasury o- operations that drained reserves from the banking system. So some banks short needed to borrow to cover their needs for Basel or otherwise, and, and the repo market just couldn't handle it. The Fed funds market, which also used to help with this sort of thing, couldn't handle it either for different reasons than the ones you're mentioning that I can go into if you like. Yeah. Well, George, uh, uh, let me switch gears a little bit. Uh, John Williams, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York the other day said, um, quote, low inflation is indeed the problem of this era. Low inflation. Now, some of us of a certain age might say that low inflation is rather a blessing of this era. And I want to ask you about this because you are the author of, among other things, of a book entitled Less Than Zero, The Case for a Falling Price Level in a Growing Economy. What was the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York getting at when he said that low inflation is indeed the problem, the problem of this era? Well, part of what he was forgetting, Jim, uh, is that... uh, Uh, Just how low inflation can go depends on what the ultimate cause of the deflation is. And uh, and that's a very important fact that many, many monetary economists and central bankers forget uh, to consider. So in particular, and this is what I argued in, in Less Than Zero, which I remember you very kindly reviewed when it came out. Uh, originally, if the cause of in deflation or or disinflation, for that matter, is increased productivity, so more goods are becoming available, there's no limit to that the amount of that sort of inflation or disinflation that the economy can stand. So it's the case that we could have prices falling two percent every year. But if they were doing so because we had productivity growth that was, let's say, 3 or 4%, that wouldn't pose a problem for the Fed. There is a problem, nonetheless. There is a problem. And the problem is that real interest rates have been terribly low, not just nominal rates, but real rates of return have been historically quite low. And um, therefore, there's a risk that nominal rates have to go to zero to clear markets. And what the people like John Williams are arguing is that the way we need to guard against this is to aim for a high inflation rate. If inflation is high enough, of course, the the risk that uh, the interest rates have to go to zero or below will be reduced. And uh, that's true, (laughs) but it's also true that there are better ways to avoid that problem and ways that don't require a permanently higher inflation rate. But, but, and, George, uh, but George, it seems to be a, a, a little bit of a contradiction between the uh, very popular conviction that interest rates are trending to zero uh, on the one hand, and on the other, uh, the problem we just discussed that uh, there was not enough money to fund uh, the Treasury's emissions during the, uh, the so-called crisis of the repo market. This is too, too much collateral means too much debt, right? And if the debt is mispriced, naturally there would be not enough buyers to carry it away and put it in a strong box for investment for the long term. That's true, but, um, but at the same time, it's also true that anything that keeps the money market too tight artificially, as has been the case uh, uh, lately, also 
does contribute to the problem of uh, the risk of having uh, a collapse in spending that is the source of a bad sort of uh, right. a bad sort of inflation. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, take a commercial now, George. You know why? Because this leads me to uh, Send Pro Online for Pit and Post. Uh, with Send Pro Online, it's just to click, send, and save for as low as four ninety nine. That's four dollars and ninety nine cents, ladies and gentlemen, a month. Send envelopes, flats, packages uh, right from your desk, and you are back in business in no time. So, apart from being a current Yield listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started and a free 10-pound scale. Yeah, it's a scale. It's a fairly heavy piece of machinery to ensure that you never overpay. Save time and money on mailing and shipping with SendPro Online, starting at $4.99 a month, not $5.499. You can also qualify for special USPS rates for letters and priority mail shipping. Calculate exact postage online, print from your PC. So go to pb.com slash grants pod to access the special offer. Three free 30-day plus trial. Uh, now it's a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash grantspod. Experience shipping made simple. All right. Can uh, I jump in? Yeah, Evan, <clears throat> Evan Lorenz. Uh, George, so the Fed doesn't want to take your advice and uh, stop paying interest on excess reserves and incentivize some banks to kind of silo their liquidity. Instead, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard a couple of recommendations. One is uh, do more QE. And uh, earlier this week, uh, two former Fed officials in the, uh, at the Peterson Institute wrote that the Fed should instantly do $250 billion in QE over the next two months. The other recommendation is to do a standing um, a repo facility, basically making the Fed the lender of first resort. Would either of these proposals or some kind of combination of both of them fix the problems in the market, and might there be unintended consequences from either of these facilities? Well, uh, first of all, I should clarify, I'm actually not against staying modest interest on reserve. What I'm against is this floor system where pay so much, the Fed pays such interest on reserves as to get banks to hold trillions of dollars worth. And the theory there is that they have oodles of reserves, so they never have to run short. We've seen how the system isn't accomplishing that goal. In any event, a modest interest rate on reserves can be considered consistent with a small central bank balance sheet and, uh, and a better, more efficient operating system. In any event, as for these solutions, well, of course, uh, one solution is for the Fed to pump in vast amounts of uh, new reserves into the system uh, and do so permanently. The, um, the the, the standing repo facility can do that, but it's actually not a solution from the Fed's point of view, uh, a permanent solution. Let me explain why. The whole idea of this Fed operating, Florida operating system is that the, there should be so many reserves at all times that the Fed doesn't have to be intervening in the market. It just puts, it just loads up the system with tons of excess reserves, and then all of its adjustments and its monetary policy stance are by changing the rate of interest on reserves, or mainly by that. So if the Fed is constantly pushing reserves into the system through repo operations, then it's having to do what it's not supposed to have to do with a, a floor system. So I think that although the standing repo facility could solve the problem, the real solution from the Fed's point of view, given that it wants to have the system work the way it's supposed to, is going to be something like a $250 billion addition once and for all, permanent addition through open market security purchases by the Fed to the total quantity of reserves in the system and counting because the quantity will have to continue growing gradually over time. That's not the same as that's using permanent additions. There'll be a gradual increase to accommodate growth in the economy so that there's plenty of excess reserves slushing around uh, in the far future. So I think that from their point of view, 
it's inevitable that they resort to uh, more quantitative easing, so to speak. Uh, George, if they do more QE, how do they avoid the problem that you pointed out earlier, which is you said something like five banks control 90% of the reserves. Kind of sounds like yeah. one of the slogans from Occupy Wall Street, like how does 1% of the population control 99% of the wealth? So if there is a distribution problem with QE, like how do they address that if that's one of the fundamental problems that you see? Uh, that is a, a very good question. And I'll tell you, I am not sure how many reserves they would have to create in order to make sure that, that there aren't still occasions when some of the banks would still not have enough because most of them are being concentrated in a few. That is a, a question that the Fed would have to grapple with. If it is indeed the case that any ex more reserves they permanently add to the system all concentrate in five banks, they would be right back where they started with. And at that point, they would have to rely on constant uh, access of banks, use of banks, of Fed repo arrangements. George, aren't there, aren't which there, are designed, uh, yeah. you know, so that the banks that need the reserves can go to the repo. But then the Fed will have a system that doesn't at all work the way they claim it should. Well, let, let, let's let's look back a mere 11 years. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet was $850 billion with a B or something like that. And the uh, volume of excess reserves, like $1.5 billion, again, with the letter B as in Bravo. So fast forward 11 years, and uh, after all of this uh, emergency and radical monetary tinkering and improvisation, we have a system in which somehow a trillion three of excess reserves is deemed, widely deemed, to be inadequate. What happened? <laughs> well, as we were saying, what happened is two things. First, right, yeah. the reserves heavily concentrated right. in a few banks. Second, uh, problems in the collateral market exacerbated by Treasury actions, by fiscal policy, that is, have made the private repo market incapable of redistributing those reserves yeah. so efficiently. We have a breakdown in the money market now, George. There, there, is, there is there is also. Not forget the poor little old federal funds market. Remember ah, that? Correct. That's now, the market George. where banks were originally supposed to right. borrow excess reserves from one another. And I can tell you what's happened there if you like. It is a mere husk. But George, have you it heard have you heard about uh, a rate called Ameribor, like LIBOR except red, white, and blue? Yes, but only only just heard it. Well, I have no tales on. Well, I can tell you a little bit. It's uh, Richard Sandor is the progenitor. He's the inventor of uh, many number of a number of financial futures institutions and contracts, including the thirty-year bond contract way back when. And this uh, Ameribor trains uh, on a screen. Uh, the American Financial Exchange, I think, is the sponsor. And I don't know that the volume of this contract is now a couple of billion dollars a day, thirteen billion. I know. In last last week when uh, the uh, repo rate screamed to 10%, the uh, Ameribor rate was uh, laudably steady and uh, with high volume. So it's, it's, a, it's a rate that um, at which regional and smaller banks can and do uh, uh, exchange excess balances. It functions like the Fed funds market. In a way, it's kind of superseding the Fed funds market. It is a spontaneous outgrowth of a entrepreneur's idea. And it's, I, I, I commend it to the Cato Institute for further study. So I'm going to leave it right, right. there. Yeah. I will study it myself then. Let me just say a word or uh, just a word or two about the Fed funds market. As you said, it's a husk. When the Fed back in 2008 first made it attractive for banks to pile up excess reserves, it killed interbank lending on that unsecured market. Well, 
in unsecured markets, lending is heavily oriented towards relationship lending. That is, the lending that's taking place is among banks that have been doing it for a long time, that know their counterparties, that know when it's safe. By killing that market, they killed that possibility of a quick revival of lending on that market because the relationships that need to develop have to be developed all over again. So the Fed funds market has been knocked out, and, and it can't, it's not the case that, that when banks suddenly need reserves, they could just jump right back into it after over a decade. And that's something people have, uh, uh, have to think about more. Uh, uh, George, if I were to do kind of like a, a big overgeneralization of what's happened in the last decade, we keep getting fixes to fixes to fixes. So the Fed flooded the money, uh, the market with uh, money via QE to save the financial system, but that destroyed uh, short-term bank lending. So then they pay interest on uh, excess reserves to lift up the, the, the rate. But now cash is getting siloed in banks. So now they're talking about doing more QE or, or um, a standing repo facility. It, it kind of reminds me of a Simpsons episode where they find this invasive lizard species and they try to kill it, but the lizards are actually killing an invasive bird species. So I'd like to read just a few lines and then ask you, like, how do we fix the fix, the fix, the fix to actually make everything right? So Principal Skinner says, well, I was wrong. The lizards are a godsend. Lisa said, but isn't that a bit short-sighted? What happens when we're overrun by lizards? Skinner, no problem. We'll simply release wave after wave of Chinese needle snakes. They'll wipe out the lizards. Lisa, but aren't the snakes worse? Skinner, yes, but we're prepared for that. We've lined up a fabulous type of gorilla that thrives on snake meat. Lisa, but then we're stuck with gorillas. Skinner, no, that's the beautiful part. When wintertime rolls around, the gorillas freeze to death. So how do we fix the fix, the fix, the fix? And the workaround. And yeah. the workaround. How do we make everything work? There is a simple answer, and I love the Simpsons comparison because it's absolutely spot on. What, what, what the Fed has, in the name of trying to set up what they thought was going to be a very simple system, they've got a Rube Gold, uh, Goldberg device, uh, and they're not finished adding contraptions to it. So there is a simple answer. It's one I argued for in Florida along ago. The answer is give up on this floor operating system. Go to a system where, uh, once again, as before 2008, you have a modest amount of reserves, a functioning interbank market, the Fed funds market, and uh, you have the Federal Reserve keeping rates on target through very modest but routine interventions, open market operations. That system wasn't anything any of us would have applauded to rent uh, you know, it's not that not our favorite kind of monetary system by any means, but holy moly, compared to what we have now, it was infinitely better. And it's what most or many foreign countries have been relying on with good results. Canada uh, here, as in so many instances, is a good example. They've had a corridor system, which is the more standard type I'm talking about. It hardly takes any reserves to run it. They haven't had any problems keeping their target. And uh, we can do that, too. There's no technical reason why we can't. But the Fed hates to admit mistakes. It hates it. Hates has it ever done it? Has, it? has the Fed ever confessed to an error? It never confessed no, well, to once. a mistake. And that's why it doesn't... Wait, it wait we have a news break. Okay, Evan. Do you remember in the mid-2000s when Bernanke came out and said, you're right, the Fed screwed up in 1929. So, <laughs> yeah, but do you, do you remember that? Because yeah, he came out and said, Milton Friedman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Apologizing to Milton Friedman. <laughs> yeah, they, they do mistakes just with a 75-year lag. <laughs> Monetary <laughs> policy has, has leads and lags. That's right. Long leads and lags. Okay. Okay. So um, I, I uh, you know, uh, around this office, we have a division of labor.
labor. Now, Evan, for example, is in charge of, uh, of, of watching The Simpsons and cataloging the rele monetarily relevant quotations. I, for my part, take care of ancient texts. All right, so I'm going to read you, George Selgin, I'm going to read you a quotation from Lord Liverpool. This comes from a very erudite a Martin Hutchinson, who writes about finance in a wonderfully eccentric and a helpful way. But Martin, I think, has written about Lord Liverpool. He's got a manuscript about Lord Liverpool, according to my friend Eddie Chancellor. Anyway, Martin has unearthed the following quotation from Lord Liverpool in 1818. This is when Britain was uh, debating whether to return to the gold standard or to perpetuate the fiat system that had been put in place uh, at the time of the beginning of the long French wars, 1797. All right, here's the quote. Quote, the tendency of in convertible paper money is to create fictitious wealth, bubbles, which by their bursting produce inconvenience, close quote. Isn't that lovely, George? Inconvenience. It's a lovely quote. And uh, I'll have you know, Jim, that being also something of an antiquarian, I'm a big Lord Liverpool fan. His treatise on the coins of the realm is one of the great works of, uh, of our discipline. And uh, I talk about him a fair bit in my other book, Good, Good Money. So uh, he, he's a great guy, a very, uh, a, a very worthwhile reading. And that's a lovely quote. Yeah. Well, George, um, speaking of lovely quotes, thank you for being on the air with us. And uh, it has been, uh, I speak for the, I speak for Eric, I think, and Evan and Phil. It's been a delight. And I speak, I'm sure, for our far-flung audience. So George tells him, thank you being with us and we'll talk again soon i hope i hope so too jim thank you very much thank you and ladies and gentlemen thank you too for being with us today on current yield mm -hmm.